Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features Kurt Brown at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Kurt Brown is a newspaper byline known to many through a popular and long-running Sunday history series in the Star Tribune. Brown has spent more than three decades in journalism, culminating in a prestigious recognition as Minnesota Journalist of the Year in 2013. He received that laurel for a serialized narrative on the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. Repackaged and sold as an ebook in the footsteps of Little Crow, Brown's masterful account landed him on the New York Times bestseller list. Brown's other titles include Frozen in History, Amazing Tales from Minnesota's Past, another Star Tribune series anthology, and The William Marvy Co. of St. Paul, a quirky tale about the nation's last barber pole-making family. Brown's latest and highest profile release, Minnesota 1918, chronicles a uniquely trying but pivotal year. 100 years ago, Minnesota faced a unique trifecta of horrors, casualties abroad in a world war, rampant and deadly influenza at home, and the state's most destructive natural disaster on record. Thank you. Thank you very much. When you work on a nonfiction book project like this, it's kind of a lonely, solitary experience. You're doing your research, and you're discovering real people, characters that lived 100 years ago. And for a history buff like me, that's really exciting. But when you get to this point in the process and you get to share some stories and their faces, that's why we have the slideshow, it's just really exhilarating. So I want to thank my wife, Adele, my chief strategic officer, who's going to run the AV stuff. And I want to do three things tonight. I want to do a quick overview of this year of woe. Um, I want to talk about three people who aren't in the book at all, who I've learned about since the book was published. And I want to talk about five women from 1918 Minnesota, who emerged as some of my favorite characters in the book. The two main characters in the book are woe and calamity. And we really should have <laughs> added a third word there, which is resilience. Because I think that, I hope at least when you read the book, that a, a theme of resilience comes through in the, the Minnesotans who live in northeastern Minnesota who endured these three things, the fire, the flu, and the war. and. Uh, resiliency and kind of that bounce back spirit. So it's not all a big downer. I hope that there's some uplifting stories that we're going to hit at a few of. Um, it struck me when writing this book that um, 100 years is a long time, but in a lot of ways, nothing's really changed. In a lot of ways, fires have been scorching the West. We now live in Durango, Colorado. We had a 55,000 acre fire this summer. So you have a lot of fires. The, the, the rate of deaths from the flu last year were alarmingly high, some of the highest in years. Um, we have men and women fighting in far off hot spots like Afghanistan, like we did 100 years ago in World War I. There's also a big theme of anti-immigrant sentiment in this book. New Ulm, 100 years ago the immigrants were the Germans who were the ones that everybody was suspicious of because of course they were the enemy in the First World War. Um, there is one thing, though, that is very different today or this week than 100 years ago, and that's the weather. Because since we drove into Minnesota a week ago, today was the first time we saw the sun. So if it had rained this much 100 years ago, there would be no book. And probably more importantly, there would have been a lot of life saved because there would have been uh, no fire. Um, you don't get to pick the names of your book. I don't know if people know that, but you can kind of recommend a title. But they have a committee of marketing people and, and sales people that kind of kick around ideas. So I actually proposed the name the Trident of Woe 
which I thought was dramatic. And the good editors at the Minnesota Historical Society Press probably wisely just went with Minnesota 1918. So I'm going to just, like I said, do a quick overview, because it was 100 years ago today, which is kind of powerful to think about, um, that the winds changed directions. Well, I should back up a little bit, because I mentioned how wet it was this week. 100 years ago was the driest year, just coming off the driest summer in Minnesota had had for 40 years. So it was, you know, bone dry. It was, it was, it was a kind, you know, kindling was just ready to go. So the winds changed on that day, October 12th, 1918, at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And there'd been a bunch of little fires in the area, but this wind that picked up to 60 miles an hour, whipped the whole area up in the Moose Lake Cloquet area. Um, 60 mile an hour winds whipped that into one big massive fire, kind of a firestorm. It was its own weather system. It was like a fire tornado. Um, here's a report with some of the statistics. I don't know if you can read them all, but um, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, is this about the Hinckley fire? And there is a great book about the Hinckley fire, but that was 24 years before this fire. And it was actually a bigger fire. It was 300,000 acres. But this one is the largest disaster in Minnesota history. Uh, more than 450 people were killed, and if you were lucky enough to survive, you were crammed into evacuee housing where more than 100 documented cases, and I think it was probably a lot more than that, came down with the flu. Uh, the flu pandemic, of course, of 1918 was the worst pandemic in world history. 50 million people, they estimate, around the world, from Eskimos to people in southern tropical places, died of the flu, and the pneumonia that was kind of hanging to its coattails. In Minnesota, 12,000 deaths were linked to the flu or to, the, to, to pneumonia. And uh, one statistic that's kind of a little crooked, in one year of 1918, more people died of the flu than in four years of the whole bubonic plague in the 1300s. And of course, the world population was much smaller. But in this country, in 1918, since 1918, the population has tripled. So 675 flu deaths were counted in the U.S. in 1918, and that would be as if 2 million people died just in a matter of months. So you can imagine that. And not to scare anybody, but especially the youngsters in the back. But Dr. Michael Osterholm and others say it's not a matter of if this could happen again, of a, a deadly uh, strain of flu like this, but when it will happen again. So that's a little spooky. Um, the backdrop of all this, of course, was World War I, which had started in 1914, but the U.S. didn't get involved until the spring of 1917. And in World War I, 3,758 Minnesotans died, but I was surprised when I learned that 2,300 of those died from disease, mostly the flu, compared to 1,400 that died actually on the battlefields themselves. So I just wanted to give you some of those numbers as a little starting out point of this trident of woe. I also tried for a trifecta of woe, but that didn't work either. <laughs> so the first thing I want to do, as I said, is talk about some people who aren't in the book at all. And to illustrate why I want to do that, I want to point to this picture. So the first book that I wrote, and some people brought copies, which is very flattering, um, was 10 years ago, and it was about a big storm in Duluth in 1905 that led to the building of Split Rock Lighthouse. I'm sure you've all been up there. Anyway. At the research phase of this book, I went to a website called BoatNerd.com, which is a real place, and it's the go-to place for maritime history on the Great Lakes. If you go there, there's all the experts' pictures. It's Anyway, I posted a little thing. I'm writing a book about this storm. If you know anything, send me an email, give me a phone call, that kind of thing. And we got lots of great information from that resource. But we finished the book, and we rewrote the book, and we edited the book, and we laid out the book, and it was all ready to go. And we finally got to that point that you wait for and to push the send button. And off it went to the publisher. And then, bling, I got a little email in my email box with this picture. And it came from a guy in Michigan. So the first guy in the back row standing up, it was his great nephew who sent the picture. And he said, I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you, but I hope you can use this picture. And it did make, so it was too late to make the book, but it did make the paperback edition that, that is here today. Anyway, I got you know, disappointed. I can't believe we missed it. You know, it's such a cool picture that adds so much richness and texture. You see the faces of these swarthy guys. These guys were members of the crew of the Ira Owen, which was carrying 
bushels of grain across the lake on Thanksgiving week and they all died. They never found the boat. It went down near the Apostle Islands. So after I got done being disappointed and angry that we missed the deadline to get this picture, and I thought about the teachable moment, and that is that history is an evolving process. The stories, just because you're done with the project doesn't mean the stories are done. History isn't over. It keeps growing. You keep learning more. You keep finding great pictures like this that add to your understanding or your feelings about the book. And so in that spirit, I want to tell you about three people who didn't make the book, because I didn't know about them. I'm talking about the new book now. These are people and stories I've learned since the book came out earlier this year. And the first guy's name, as you can see, is Carl Knutsen. And Carl was born in a place called Swede Forest Township, which is about 120 miles west of here. And he was the oldest of seven kids. Um, he was probably expected to stay on the farm and help his dad, but uh, as you can see, he went off to Decorah, Iowa, where he went to Luther College, and he played championship tennis. He debated the new Panama Canal, and he edited a monthly college magazine, and he graduated in 1913 and landed a job in Iowa, and then he returned home to Delhi, Minnesota, about 10 miles west of his family's farm. Um, and everything changed, of course, in 1917. As I mentioned, that was the year that the U.S. got into World War I. He wrote letters to his sister Nettie that I'm going to just read you a little bit of. He said, well, our country is at war, he told Nettie. My studies have led me to ponder at the spirit and the sacrifices of the individuals who are responsible for our country's makeup. So I have often thought of how I could best do my part. The time was now ripe for me to show my seriousness, he told Nettie. This thing has been working on me for many months, and only last Thursday evening did I make up my mind. The folks took it pretty hard the first day, but the day I left, they showed good spirits. He said, I appreciate the responsibility and the gravity of my future, but I am ready to meet them. Well, on June the 6th of 1918, so just a little over a century ago, in the Blue Woods of France, it was considered kind of the Gettysburg of World War I, the pivotal battle. And he was one of 1,800 soldiers who died that day, June 6th. More than half of those were Marines. He was a member of the United States Marine Corps. So that means that more Marine casualties happened in one day than in the first 143 years of the Marine Corps. And I kind of hate to use statistics like that, because Carl would have hated that. In one of the letters to Nettie, he said, the individual is lost and the armies counted by the millions. So I just wanted to start with him because we don't want to forget him and those armies of millions from 1918. Uh, the next person I want to tell you about is named Margarita Shevchek. And again, I would have loved to put her in the book, but I didn't know the story at the time. And, and we talked a little bit about this history column I write in the Star Tribune every Sunday for the last 206 weeks, but who's counting except me? <laughs> Um, anyway, I, it's turned into this great crowdsourcing kind of history thing. So the first one, almost as an afterthought, on the end, we put a little tagline, we call it, that said, hey, if you have any ideas for this column, you know, give us a, an email, mnhistory at startribune.com. And I joke with Adele, my wife, that every week I kind of put my hands out and these little, like, stories parachute down. And I'm the lucky one who gets to then take those stories and turn them into column. So it's a dream job. I joked with the editor of the Star Tribune who had coffee the other day. I said, all I had to do was quit the paper and move 2,000 miles away to get the best job at the paper. <laughs> he kind of laughed. I hope he laughed. <laughs> anyway, so a woman named Joe Marie Alexander called me and told me this was when the Thai soccer team was stuck in the caves. Remember that whole story? So she told me about her great grandfather who was an Austrian cave diver. And a similar scene had played out. It wasn't with kids. It was adults got stranded in a cave, and he went and saved him and became a national Austrian folk hero. And his son, I think, then moved to the Iron Range. So I told her, that, thank you. I, I love it. It's a great story, but it's not really Minnesota history. And as often happens in these cases, when someone pitches a story and, and, I, and I say, thank you, but it's not really going to work, they come back like she did. And she said, well, I haven't told you about the Slovenian side of my family. <laughs> So then she told me about her great, I mean, her grandmother, Margarita Shevchek. Her and her husband, Frank, left Slovenia and came to Eveleth, where Frank got a job in the iron mines in 1913. She had one small child and was pregnant with her second child when their house burnt down. 
1913. So Frank, her husband, told her, you're, you're homesick, um, you're pregnant, why don't you go home to our little village in Slovenia, you have the baby, I'll work overtime in the mine, and by the time you come back, the house will be rebuilt, and we'll live happily ever after. So that was the plan, and she did go home to Slovenia, gave birth to a daughter, and then world events intervened in her life. So 300 miles away from her village, and only three months later in Sarajevo, the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated, and historians point to that as the, the trigger that started World War I. So she somehow made her way with her teenage sister to Vienna, where she had to apply for a U.S. passport. And they had, she had to prove that Frank, back in the mines, was a naturalized citizen, and he was, but it took, I'm sure, a long time, many months to get paperwork in the middle of a war with torpedoes and submarines and war going on to get the paperwork. Well, she finally got it, and she got her U.S. passport, and literally walked across war-torn Europe with her sister and now a three-year-old and a one-year-old, got on a ship, got through these torpedoing submarines, and made it back to Eveleth, where they had a short window of good times and a third baby. And uh, in 1918, Frank went out at a time, right around this time of year, to go hunting deer to feed his now growing family where he contracted the 1918 flu and died. And so she ended up later remarrying. But she was right, the Slovenia side of the story worked great for a column. And, and again, one of 12,000 Minnesotans to die was Frank up in Eveleth, Minnesota. And the next person I want to tell you about, this is kind of a confusing one, but I want to start out, well, I'll pass that out later. Um, I'm not going to read the introduction of the book, but I'll tell you the story behind it. So we were up doing research a couple of summers ago. My wife's family had a cabin in, near Aiken that they were cleaning out to sell. And so I said, well, I got to go do research trying to get away from the work. And she was just as happy to get rid of me. So anyway, I had an interview uh, lined up with a guy named Dan Reed up in the Kettle River area who knows more about this 1918 fire than anyone. In fact, NPR did a good story interview with him just today because he's the guru go-to guy. Anyway, I went to his house at the assigned time and he wasn't there or he didn't answer the door and I didn't know what to do. So I called my wife and I said, what do I do? And she said, well, why don't you take Natalie to lunch? Well, Natalie Fro is the woman who runs the museum in Moose Lake, the fire museum. So we had a nice lunch, and at the end of the lunch, she said, have you talked to the Ekman boys? And I said, who are the Ekman boys? And she said, well, they're identical twin brothers, and that's Chuck Ekman and his brother Jim, and they live on their grandfather's farmstead, which was uh, one of the few houses not burned up in that Kettle River area. So I headed over there, cold knocked on the door, and his wife Shirley invited me in and gave me lots of cake and cookies and coffee. <laughs> And I finally said, how do you know I'm not like an axe murderer? And she said, oh, Natalie called. She, she, she backed you up. So anyway, at the time, I was researching a, a family named the Soderberg family. And they were a large Swedish family that was very worried about their son David because he was fighting in the trenches and the mustard gas over in France. Well, by the time David got home, his whole entire family had been wiped out. And most of them died in this root cellar. Um, they figured that would be with fire sweeping across the countryside, the place to go to be safe. So they piled all the kids, neighboring kids, 16 of them I think it was, into this root cellar. And um, the fire actually sucked the oxygen out and they were suffocated. Oh. So anyway, while drinking coffee and eating cookies with Shirley and Jim, I said, do you know where the Soderberg root cellar is? And he said, sure, you want to go see it? He's very spry, he's now 82. So we went traipsing across his field and a couple neighboring fields probably less than a quarter of a mile, to this group of trees. And I had thought of a root cellar like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, a little thing by the house. But as you can see, they were built out in the country with timber and mud and rocks. And that's where you put your potatoes and where you put your ham. You know, you stored your food for the winter. So anyway, we got, if you go back one, we got back to this entry. And there's not a sign or memorial or a plaque or anything. There's just this kind of structure in the, in the woods. And he said, you can go on in if you want. And so I said, okay. And I turned this cell phone flashlight on and I went in there for a little bit. And there were some rusty hooks in there where you would have hung your meat. And, um, and I used that as a device to say, you know, the darkness of that 
opening brought me back 100 years, and that's how I kind of introduced the book. So the book came out earlier this year, like I mentioned, and I got a phone call from a woman, kind of frantic phone call from this woman, whose name is Grace Mapes, and she lives in Invergrove Heights. And she said, I heard you wrote a book about 1918. I said, you're right, I did. And she said, I heard you talk to Jim and Chuck Ekman. I said, I did. She goes, well, I'm their older sister, and I know a lot more than they do. <laughs> <coughs> so I've come to learn that, that every family, it seems, has a designated genealogy history expert. And if you quote someone, especially in a book, who's not the official designated historian of the family, you get in big trouble. But I'm happy to say I quickly turned uh, Grace around. I said, hey, I'm sorry, but I'd love to learn more. Maybe I can come over and visit. And she said, oh, you want to come visit? So I headed over to her house in Invergrove Heights, where she had cookies and cake and coffee. <laughs> and we've become very good friends. She came to one of these talks the other night, and she's going to come tomorrow. We're all heading up to Moose Lake in Cloquet for the 100th anniversary. And one thing she gave me the other night, she brought some pictures, too. But she brought this, which is a fused together, kind of melted pennies and little coins. So I can pass that around so you can touch part of 1918. Anyway, part of the Ekman family story that had to do with this whole fire. And there's two, I'll fess up to them, they're mistakes in the book. But they're, they get back to the point I was trying to make that history evolves, that we learn more stuff, including some minor inaccuracies. And she busted me on one of them. Because I told this story about this woman whose name was Agnes Ekman Peterson was her married name. She was 33 years old and pregnant on this day, July, I mean October 12th, 1918, when the fire swept through. She ran to a neighbor's house and climbed down into the well, hoping that would save her. But the timbers collapsed when they started on fire. And the next day, the Superior newspaper said only her skull was recognizable, and they identified her by her belt buckle. She had a unique belt buckle on. But Grace quickly pointed out, because I didn't go to the official family historian, that that was their aunt, not their great aunt. So if they print another edition of the book, we will take out the word Grace. Um, but I just wanted to share that story. Because again, like those swarthy sailors from the Ira Owen, you see a picture like that, and it adds richness and the texture, and the story gets better as the time goes on. The other mistake, or things we've learned since the book came out, involves this guy. So I mentioned there was a big kind of virulent anti-immigrant, anti-German sentiment sweeping across the state in 1918 because, of course, Germany was our enemy in the war and it was the number one home place of origin for Minnesotans. You know, everybody talks about the Scandinavians, but there's more German ancestry in Minnesota than Scandinavian. So I did this whole chapter about New Ulm. The governor of Minnesota at the time, Governor Burnquist, actually threw out the mayor of New Ulm threw him out of office, threw out the city attorney because they were suspected of being too pro-German and they weren't giddy enough about the war. Um, so I told all this politics. And last night we were in Little Falls at Charles Lindbergh's home. And Charles Lindbergh's father, the 10-year congressman from Little Falls, had actually run for governor. And people had thrown fruit at him and apples at him and, and painted things yellow because they didn't think he was gung-ho enough for war. Anyway, at the end of that chapter, I thought we should remind the reader that this war is going on. So this guy's name is Benjamin Seifert, and he was the first guy from Brown County, Minnesota, where New Ulm is the county seat, to die in the war. He got hit by a kind of a freak propeller accident on an airfield in, in, in uh, England and died. So I found his death certificate online and said he was buried in the Catholic cemetery. So I wrote that he was buried behind the Catholic Church, and I got a call from a guy named Henry Ubel, who spells his name U-B-L, and he's kind of the leading New Ulm historian in New Ulm. So he called and he said, hey, good job on the book. I really enjoyed it. I, I think the New Ulm chapter was really great. I appreciate you putting that in. And I kept waiting for the butt, because I knew there was a butt coming. <laughs> and he said, but where did you get that bit about Seifert getting buried behind the church? I said, oh, I have the death certificate right on my desktop. I'll attach it to an email. You know, I was going to show him that I had it. And he said, well, yeah, you're right. He was buried in the uh, Catholic cemetery, but that's not behind the church. It's a mile away. So <laughs> I do apologize for that's him sitting in the front row. So I buried him a mile from where he was really rested. Um, I want to shift now and talk about these five women 
1918 Minnesota, and I'll explain why I want to start with Aini Yokomaki, one of the several Finns who were caught up in this, in this horror. Um, Aina was, was 18 years old at the time of the fire, and I'm just going to read a little bit of her account of the book. And she said that it was a nice warm day, October 12th, 1918, um, but about 4 o'clock winds suddenly shifted to the northwest. Um, she lived next to the Yankala Brothers uh, sawmill, and she said about a million feet of lumber lined both sides of the road. It, quote, one board took off in the air like a flaming arrow and landed on a haystack about a half mile away, and the hay exploded into flames. The fire was spreading so fast, she said, quote, no human could possibly run and hope to escape. Not that they didn't try. So by this time, it was not only getting dark, but because of the fire and the smoke, it was really dark. Um, so she took off running, and she said, um, it was just seemed like a few minutes, and the terrifying inferno was over and above and all around us. She was separated from her family, and she found herself alone and lost. The ground was covered with burning logs and hot coals. The air was stifling. Quote, running and jumping over these burning logs, I was desperately seeking my way home, Ina said. Imagine yourself a terrified young girl in shock. She was wearing stockings and high-top boots, and her clothes somehow didn't catch fire, but, quote, my feet actually baked inside my shoes and stockings. She was too shocked to feel the pain at the time, but her feet would be forever scarred, she said, to my dying day. Um, she, you can see it, her hands. I mean, this picture just sums up the grief, I think. You can see her feet and hands are bandaged up. Her mother, who was 39 years old, died, as did six of her siblings in the fire. But I mentioned the theme we hope to hit in this book was resiliency. And the book was actually commissioned by a guy named Josh Leventhal from the Minnesota Historical Society Press. You know, and he said, let's try to bring all three of these, tri this trident of woe together. But he said, but we don't want to be all depressing. You know, we want to, he said, the blurb we're looking for on the back of the book should be gruesomely uplifting. <laughs> anyway, we hope that there would be, you know, a sense of resiliency. And I think nothing shows that better than this picture of Aina Yokomaki Johnson after she got married. She was in her 70s when this was taken. And thanks to the wonders of Ancestry.com, that's where I found this picture. She had nine kids and had led pretty much a full life. But the real reason, or one of the real reasons I wanted to start talking about her um, is just to talk about how these stories get passed down, how they ended up in my lap and now hopefully in all your laps. So there was a guy named Edwin Manny who was a Finnish banker and an auctioneer up in that Moose Lake Kettle River area. And he went around in the 60s and 70s with a guy I mentioned before, Dan Reed, and they collected every story they could from survivors and they typed them up. And there's only a few of these books up there because there's no index at the back, they're not digitized, they're not online, and they're just typed stories and accounts. And on page 101, I think it is, that carries the Aini Yokomaki story, he explains, Edwin Manny explains, that they had become good friends, Edwin and his wife, with the Johnsons. And on many Saturday nights, they would come over for dinner and cards and cake. And afterwards, they would, re re they would head to the sauna. Of course, the Finns love their saunas. And he said most of the stories that she finally opened up about her firsthand memories came in the sauna. So, you know, I feel lucky that she shared her story with Edwin Manny, who shared it with Dan Reed, who shared it with me. And so we kind of just passed these stories down. But without the saunas, we might not have had all the good details <laughs> of these stories. So the next person is really two people. There's two sisters. Uh, Dora and Florence Thortvet lived up by Moorhead, Minnesota, along the Buffalo River. And they were avid diary keepers. And in one diary, Dora, who was 27 at the time, she said, most of the young boys are in France. How many of them will come back is hard to tell. Even if we have peace now, this terrible flu epidemic is just awful. So among those fighting in the war were her, their brother Goodwin and their neighbor from the farm up the road, Eugene Studline. So on one snowy night, Dora wrote, quote, we had finished supper and we were sitting around the table saying just how long it had been since everybody had heard from the boys. And just then, then the bell rang and her mother, Ingeborg Thortvet, answered to find her neighbor, Edward Studline, bearing grim news. His 23-year-old son, Eugene, had been killed in action in France on October 4, 1918. 
It's just so awful, Dora wrote, as if it should have been a brother of ours. I just can't realize it. And it will be still worse when we wake up and find it's no dream. Goodwin's comrade. So we have a little difference of opinion here. There's that blotch of ink you can see. So my interpretation of it is that she was so grief-stricken writing about her friend dying that she stopped for a moment, was briefly paralyzed, and that ink spread. Some of the other knights suggested maybe it was tears she was crying, and maybe the tears made that happen. My wife, Adele, thinks maybe she just had a busted pen. So, <laughs> so we, we continue to interpret history. Like I said, it's an evolving process. So her younger sister, Florence, like I said, was 10 years younger. She was going to Moorhead State, which was then the Moorhead Normal School. And she wrote about that they had all been sent home for the, quote, for the sake of the horrible pestilent disease called the influenza, which she spelled with an E because it was kind of a new thing that not many people had known about. They learned in the days following word that their neighbor had died, that their own brother had been injured. He'd been wounded in the arm. And she wrote, I must confess I was glad Goodwin was wounded so he could stay away from that terrible front. Of course, the infamous Western front. For at least a couple months, and probably by then, the war might be over. And she was spot on because, of course, the war ended on November 11th, which was known as Armistice Day for many years, and now we call it Veterans Day. So I just wanted to include some of that. And I should mention, I was so lucky, this network of history buffs like me from across the state, a lot of them work in little museums. And the guy who works up in Clay County near Moorhead digitized all those diaries and sent me PDFs down to Colorado. So it was truly a team effort, so I felt honored to be the one who got to use all this stuff. Um, the next one I want to tell you about, and she's always a crowd favorite at these talks, is named Pearl MacGyver. And she ended up in the United States Nursing Hall of Fame. She ran the federal government's public nursing program in Washington for 30 years. But back in 1918, she was a junior at the University of Minnesota, and she was a nursing student. Uh, the pediatric ward, as you can imagine, was crammed full, double occupancy, with sick, wailing children. Um, and it was her first night that she was scheduled to come in at, in the evening and stay up till 7 in the morning as kind of the overnight nursing staff. And she was just a junior nursing student. So I'll give you some of her story. Besides the crying children, MacGyver was greeted that first night by an exhausted day shift staff. Following regulations, they wore tight white masks, white gowns, and snug-fitting white caps. And it ended up all those regulations didn't help the spread of the flu at all. But anyway, that was the rules. Um, adding to the harrowing experience, the alien appearance of the medical staff freaked out the already traumatized kids. Pearl wrote, quote, imagine the terror of those children to find themselves in a strange environment among a bunch of ghosts. So the day shift staff, again, didn't, you know, was kind of reluctant to leave, but she finally convinced them that you're tired, you should all go home, I'll be fine. So they left. And she wrote, as soon as the last nurse had left, I pulled off my mask and cap so I would look more like a human being. <laughs> then one by one, she wrapped the babies in their blankets and rocked them in an old white wooden rocking chair. Gradually, the wailing subsided as the children, quote, responded so well to seeing a person who looked ordinary and who gave them a little cuddling. She said by midnight, they all fell into a relaxed sleep, and as each woke up, she forced them to drink fluids, which was the key part of their treatment. So four nights later, Pearl was again in the midst of what she called her rocking episode when someone walked into the ward and startled her. The horrified man, a medical intern, asked, what on earth are you doing? So she figured she was going to get fired. She'd broken all the protocol. So she shot back at this guy and said, these children are scared stiff, and I'm merely trying to make them feel comfortable at home. So an awkward pause followed before the young doctor in training asked, have you a second rocking chair? <laughs> and every night for weeks after that, he arrived at 10 o'clock, stripped off his mast, and rocked the sick children alongside the student nurse. Neither he nor Pearl, quote, ever told a soul about our night routine in the pediatric wards. <laughs> she was on her way to the Nursing Hall of Fame by showing that much compassion, I think. So my favorite character in the book is this woman, and her name is Anna Dickie Oleson. And she became kind of a celebrity two years later. In 1920, of course, women got the right to vote. And uh, so she became the first woman in the country to run for the United States Senate with major party backing. She was a Democrat 
and she came in uh, third place, but still she became, the New York Times wrote stories about her. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, who ran three times for president, was a popular speaker, and he'd kind of barnstormed the country with these Chautauqua lectures, and often he brought her along. Um, but back in 1918, she was the superintendent's wife in Cloquet. Cloquet, again, was the largest of more than a dozen towns burned to the ground. And so she lived through and has a great first-hand account of what she saw. Um, after the, the fire, they moved to Northfield, Minnesota, where her husband became a, I think he was a German professor and the registrar at Carleton. But she never forgot about what she'd gone through and what her neighbors had gone through. So just to give you a little background, um, because World War I was going on, the government seized control of the railroads in 1918. They kind of nationalized the railroads. It was the first time the U.S. had been in a world war like this, so that was one of the things they did. Well, at the end of the fire, when the finger of blame started getting pointed, railroads were blamed for starting these fires. There were sparks from the locomotives that started this dry kindling conditions to erupt into the huge fire 100 years ago today. Um, so about five years after that, and again, these were mostly immigrants, Finns and Poles up there. Um, five years after this, the government said, okay, look, add up how much you lost, how much livestock you lost, the price of your house, you know, and we'll give you half. We'll give you half of what you lost. And these people felt the pressure, you know, how long are they going to outlast the government in a big, bitter court fight? Um, so that a lot of them took that deal. Well, 12 years later, in 1930, Anna was the head of a committee trying to get relief for these Minnesotans. And she went to a congressional subcommittee, and I'll just read a little bit. She said, I want to tell you that we signed that deal under duress. It was a duress of poverty, the duress of broken hearts, the duress of broken homes. We had no more money to fight, and we'd fought as long as hard as we could, and we suffered what she did. She made it clear she was was not testifying to appeal to the congressman's hearts. Quote, I did not come here asking for sympathy. We have never asked for sympathy. We only ask for justice, not sympathy in any way, shape, or form. So she went on to tell these congressmen kind of her own firsthand experience. And then she started winding up her testimony. She said, our courts in Minnesota said that my little house was burned 100% by the agents of the railroad administration. But when I came to get my money back, I only got half, although my house was burned altogether, not half. They burned everything we had, not half of what we had. And we feel in right and justice and equity, we should have our money back. She wasn't done yet. <laughs> she said, I want to say one more thing. Our settlers are Polish, Finnish, Austrian, and a good many of them Scandinavian. She said those first three immigrant groups came from countries with oppressive governments. Quote, they fear government up there more than they do in a community that is all American birth and ancestry. They were afraid of these government investigators. When they rallied together that night of the fire, October 12th, 100 years ago today, to get out the settlers, they were using broken English the best they could. And I hate to see it laughed at, and I hate to see our courts laughed at. These people need the money very badly. So she wrapped up her testimony with her trademark fervor, Quote, let us not be blind to justice and forget the poor because some with more money were partly reimbursed for their loss. The poor lost far more than others and most of our people were of the poor class and had just enough to get along by laboring and struggling hard. So it ended up in 1935, 17 years after the fire, um, that Franklin Roosevelt signed a bill authorizing $11 million in payment to the Minnesota fire sufferers to make them whole, kind of the other half of what they had agreed on earlier. And I'm pretty sure without her fighting this battle for 15 years that that never would have happened. And it's considered the first time that the people took on the government and the railroads and actually won. So we owe her a debt of gratitude, the superintendent's wife. So finally, like I mentioned, we didn't want this all to be a, a bunch of woe. We want it to be group, gruesomely uplifting. So this is the <laughs> uplifting part. <laughs> And um, it involves these two people, Beatrice and Floyd Gellerman. Uh, her maiden name was Parks. And, and he was in the U.S. Navy and was home on leave. Now, this is two months after the, the fire, so it's December of 1918. And he came home, and his ship stopped in New York, where he went to Tiffany's and got an engagement ring and headed home. Well, at the time, the government had supplied or 
handed out supplies, basically simple lumber and stuff, so your family could build a shack. And one witness said it looked like mushrooms overnight sprung up all over the countryside up there with these 12, 10 by 12 foot shacks. If you had a big family, I think they were 10 by 14 foot. But people put these shacks up just to get through that Minnesota winter. So his family lived in Scanlon, and they crowded into their shack. Hers lived in Cloquet, so that was three miles away. So they had been kind of spending the whole week walking back and forth. Not a lot of privacy and romance. <laughs> so 65 years later, Beatrice wrote her memories, and I'll share some of them. She said, on the afternoon of December 23, 1918, and yet another walk between Scanlon and Cloquet, Floyd must have been ready to explode, so she asked, so he asked, why don't we just get married and go to Duluth for our honeymoon? So now they had something to talk about. Um, she wrote that mother was plenty perturbed. She had visions of a nice wedding the following summer in a new home that was already planned after Floyd was out of the Navy. Her father, on the other hand, empathized with his future son-in-law, who was spending his leave, like I said, trudging back and forth through the cold. Dad could see how we felt, Beatrice wrote. And he said, when would you like to get married? And Floyd said, tomorrow, because <laughs> his leave was almost over. So her father headed off in the woods. Of course, there were no phones or any way to communicate. So he went out on foot to go find the Reverend William Williams, their Presbyterian pastor. And I'll skip a little bit. Um, she said, one thing I remember clearly was the fresh fragrance of the shack. And it's, it's funny how sometimes those sensory things can bring back memories. She said, new green unfinished pine, a fresh scrub floor, and a cozy fire and a little heater. So just before noon, Floyd returned from his errands and walked into the shack, her family shack. And then B's father and the minister came, and he was, quote, dressed in a plaid wool shirt, high-topped boots and jacket. So they all crowded in. There was a brother named Milo and a sister named Doris and a little four-year-old. She had a little four-year-old brother named Merton. And she said, Merton was all dressed up in a sailor suit and was cute as a button. She said he, he was sitting on a shelf that usually held the wash basin, and he was intensely interested in the whole proceedings. So the two families that had been ripped apart by all this calamity um, were crowded together in a warm, pine-scented shack. And she wrote that the ceremony didn't take long. We stood on the rug in front of the chest. And when it was over, Floyd slipped a $5 bill to the, to the minister who was filling out their marriage certificate. So Re Reverend Williams later gave them that certificate in a little booklet. And she wrote that, quote, that evening, when we looked at the book, there was a $5 bill in an envelope with B written on it. She said the pastor had refunded the $5, making the ceremony a very simple, inexpensive wedding. Oh. And um, so... I'll just tell, before I can open it up for questions, I'll tell you about this picture. When you sign a contract to write these books, it spells out you need 80,000 words and you have this deadline and that deadline. And there's a little paragraph that says the writer is responsible for coming up with, fifth and getting the rights and permissions and all that, for 50 images or photographs to put in the book, you know. And I remember kind of being cocky. I'm a writer, what do I know about collecting pictures? But in both these book projects, collecting the pictures ended up the most fun part. <laughs> it reminded me of my boyhood collecting baseball cards. So anyway, I had read her story, and I found online her obituary. She died at age 100 in Austin, Minnesota. Not that long ago, I think like in 2012. So I cold called the church secretary at the church that handled her, her funeral, and I gave her the long story, I'm calling from Colorado, but I'm writing a book on Minnesota, and do you know Beatrice Gellerman? And she said, no, but I know a friend of hers, I know someone who does know her. So she connected me with her friend who had just cleaned out her senior apartment in the senior building down in Austin and had a shoebox full of photos. So I said, oh, could you scan one in and email it to me? And she said, I don't know how to do that, but you give me your address and I'll send you that picture. And it still hangs over my desk down where I do my writing. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Kurt Brown and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Brown chose the stories he did for his book. 
when I write this column every Sunday, it would be really easy to write every column about a white guy because white guys, of course, wrote the history books. They were the war heroes, the business tycoons, the political honchos, but of course they represent less than half the story. So originally my plan was to find like three or four characters who were touched by maybe two or three of these tridents of woe and around them weave this narrative. But as I started doing the research, and like I said, I got great help from people across the state, I was getting all kinds of good stuff, but it was more kind of a mosaic. So I decided to shift gears and make it more of a kind of a mosaic, little stories that I hope at the end you get a sense of what that year was like from all these different stories. As the research started coming in, more and more strong women voices kept coming through, and I was thrilled by that, but I kind of wondered, well, how could that be? And I was thinking about the times, of course, like I said, 1920, women got the right to vote. So they were stepping out like never before in 1918, and women's clubs were wildly popular. Every community, it seemed, had a women's club, and maybe one month they would talk about someone took a trip to Washington, or a travelogue of Brazil, or current events. Well, in 1933, the Cloquet Women's Club, I think it was the Cloquet Thursday Women's Club, <laughs> sponsored an essay contest, and the topic was Memories of 1918. So there's a treasure trove of first-hand essays written 15 years later, but still pretty good stuff. Um, so that really helped. And then as the years have gone by since 1918, and the men died off, and anniversaries came, the 50th anniversary, the 75th anniversary, a lot of times it was women telling those stories. So I was thrilled that women had such a strong voice in the book, and that those are some of my theories as to why. This audience member wonders why the railroad companies were held responsible for the forest fires. It's interesting, the whole role of the railroads in this calamity. So the courts, and the, they all found them liable because, for one, they were supposed to have people up there maintaining the sidings and the tracks to make sure that there was, you know, branches and twig, you know, all that detritus from the lumber industry lining the sides of these tracks. They also were supposed to put on little grates over the chimneys that would keep the big chunks coming up, but the conductors of the train didn't like that. It slowed the drive on the train, so a lot of times they took those off. So they were found negligent for not doing what they were supposed to do to make sure things were safe up there. I mean, a whole other factor is a lot of the able-bodied fighter, you know, fighters of fighters of fires were off fighting in the war. So, you know, they argued that, well, hey, we tried to maintain the side of the tracks and keep them clean from burnable shrubs and stuff, but we didn't have enough people to do it because of the, 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 employee, the employment shortage left by all these guys going off to war. Um, at the same time that they were blamed as the culprit that caused the fire, they also saved thousands of people's life. They had rescue trains and there's all kinds of great stories about these rescue trains and boxcars and people piling in, and they saved most, mostly, especially in Cloquet. I mean, only a few people out of the 7,000 people in Cloquet died because of the heroics of these trains saving them. So they were both the good guy and the bad guy. This question is about how Kurt Brown became a writer. I grew up in Chicago. I went to McAllister College in 1978. I majored in history and American studies. But, you know, everyone says, what are you going to do with a history degree? But then I was the editor of the Mac Weekly, and my wife was the ad manager <laughs> a long time ago. So anyway, I worked at the Star Tribune. I started out as a sports writer at the Pioneer Press. Well, I started out at the Fergus Falls Daily Journal, where Mark's from, and I covered the Capitol for two sessions when Al Quee was the governor and got college credit. I worked at the Associated Press, so I did sports, politics, crime, in the end of my 26 years at the Star Tribune, I was on the state team, so we kind of roamed around the state covering all kinds of stuff. And we did some of these history projects, like was mentioned, we did a 150th anniversary of the U.S.-Dakota War, this big six-part series. So four years ago, we decided to get out of here. Our three kids had grown and scattered, one's in L.A., one's in Portland, and one's in Indiana. And um, so my late parents had built a house on this little trout stream near Durango. So we decided, let's go. Well, the editor, Renee Sanchez of the Star Tribune, you know, tried to convince me to stay and said, you can do whatever you want. I said, well, we want to go try a new, a stage a new act in our lives. And he said, well, what could you do from there? You know, as kind of a freelancer. So I kind of had the idea in my head, but I made it 
think like it was made it seem as if it was his idea. I said, well, we've done a lot of these history things. He goes, oh yeah, we could do like a history column. I go, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've done it now, like I said, for since October of 2014, every Sunday. And it's this great crowdsourcing thing where I get these great stories. And I'm the lucky one who gets to turn them into a thousand words every Sunday, so. The final question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about a dangerous section of road in Brown's book called Dead Man's Curve. So Dead Man's Curve, for those who haven't read the book or don't know the history, is up by Kettle River. And uh, cars were kind of new in 1918. For a lot of people, it was a new thing. So as these horrible fires came, if you couldn't get on a train to get out of there, a lot of people piled in their Model Ts and their Model As. And some accounts had 12 people hanging on the side. And there's a big curve up there that at the time wasn't called Dead Man's Curve, but all these cars took the turn, or not all of them, but many of them took it too fast, tipped over. A lot of people were badly injured just in the car accident, and then the fire came sweeping through. And I think 70 people died on that one corner. Thanks again. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Northtown event with Kurt Brown. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Julia Glass at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. National Book Award winner Julia Glass won one of fiction's highest honors with her debut novel, Three Junes. Her newest, A House Among the Trees, centers around the childhood secrets and shocking last will and testament of a world-renowned children's book author. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.